Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Joined, as always, by Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hey. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hello. Hey, guys. Okay, I saw your notes earlier. There's a ton to talk about today. And I have two big topics I want to talk about. I'll bring up one now, and, and maybe I'll bring up the other later. The first one I, I want to bring up now, and I think it's going to be relevant to a bunch of the stories you raise, and this is the issue of how to frame conversations about energy. This is a topic I'm very, very big on because I believe that the framework of a thought process or conversation, which is the starting structure from which it begins, that influences everything else. And in general, I think that we operate on a framework that's very biased and sloppy at the expense of fossil fuels and nuclear, and that ultimately leads to very, very bad thinking. Now, the fundamental thing I think needs to be at the beginning of any discussion in one form or another is the, is the idea of what's our standard? How are we measuring good and bad? So if we're saying we're arguing about or we're talking about what's a good or bad policy toward fracking in Colorado or fracking in Ohio or building this pipeline, ultimately when we're talking about is this a good idea or a bad idea, we have to have some definition of good or bad, some standard by which we're going to measure or evaluate things as good or bad. And as I've talked about many times, my standard for that is what I'd call human flourishing, which is human life being as good as possible, really, in every aspect of life. And that's ultimately the right standard. But recently, I've been experimenting with a different way of discussing it that I think better captures what needs to be captured to frame a discussion. And I'll, I'll just preface this by saying sometimes when I talk about human flourishing, people think, well, does that really take into account the environment? Does that take into account the climate system, the ecosystem? And I'll say, yes, it does, definitely, because those are those are uh, parts of human flourishing. But nevertheless, people sometimes tend to detach it. And on the other hand, when we talk about environmental issues and environmental quality, as I've discussed on previous episodes, I think people think about that in a very wrong way because they, they think of an environment just as our non-human surroundings. And so they people don't think of environment in terms of things like buildings and roads and things that we ourselves build that actually make our surroundings much better. So when people talk about, oh, something's good for the environment or bad for the environment, they're excluding all of the positive human things that we can do to our environment. And those turn out to be the most decisive things. So I don't like the way when people talk about environment and then also but when I talk about human flourishing, sometimes people think I'm ignoring things about environment like air quality or water quality or climate. So this leads to what I've found to be a very effective way of having discussions. And I'll give you an example. I was on a podcast of sorts or a YouTube thing maybe three or four weeks ago, and it was about a potential terminal in Oakland that would, among other materials, that would carry, among other materials, coal. And what I said at the beginning of that interview, when I was asked, what do you think about this? I said, well, there are a lot of things that people are discussing here, but for me, there's one basic question. And, and it was, will Oakland be a better place to live if we build this terminal or if we don't build this terminal? And that's, I really like that wording of, will Oakland be a better place to live? And of course, if you're talking about a global thing, you can talk about it more broadly. Like, will the earth be a better place to live? Or will Colorado or will Ohio be a better place to live? So the formula is basically, will X place be a better place to live if we do Y or not Y? Y is a policy. So it's like a certain place and a certain policy. And what I love about this this framing, and I've been playing with it with some initially really good results, is it really captures the idea of what I call the human environment, which is that we want to live in a world that's as good for human life as possible. And that includes certain non-human things being in a certain state and then you know having air and water, et cetera, being good. But then also having certain kinds of infrastructure and and really ev all kinds of values that we create that are good. Because ultimately, what makes a place good to live 
is the whole the total of the environment that we live in in the in the very fullest sense of the term. So what I like about this expression does it make X a, a better place to live or a worse place to live is that's a really common that's a really relatable kind of terminology. It's people understand, oh, I understand what it means for say Detroit to be a better place to live and I can see oh, Detroit was made a bad place to live by certain kinds of things and it could be crime or pollution. People have a very holistic sense of human flourishing as it relates to our environment when they talk about a place being a good place to live or a bad place to live. And so it really it really captures many, if not all of the dimensions we want to consider when making a policy versus when people talk about environment, they very narrowly just are thinking about what are potential negative human impacts. And that always leads to a distorted decision. So, for example, if you take a, one of these fracking discussions, people will say they'll talk about fracking and environment and they'll, they'll only think about ways in which fracking could make, quote unquote, the environment worse. And then even if there's some very dubious thing about groundwater, which is very unlikely, or some very far-fetched claim about cancer, people still think, oh, well, on balance, it's still negative. Let's be safe. And if you talk about, oh, well, fracking be good for the environment or not, they'll say, oh, well, let's just be safe, right? Let's not, let's not do anything. But if you say, will allowing these projects make Colorado a better place to live or a worse place to live, that then summons the whole impact of those projects on every aspect of life. And then you start to see, oh yeah, that groundwater thing and that cancer thing, those are totally exaggerated. But what's what we're missing is all these ways in which this project is going to make life better, including all the ways in which it's going to make us healthier. It's going to make us wealthier. We're going to be able to afford better food. Our hospitals will work better. Um, it, it, we're a lot actually less likely to get sick and die among other benefits. If we, if we allow this industry. So I encourage people to just, when you're thinking about issues and when you're talking to people, try talking about it in terms of, will this policy, it could be the Green New Deal, like will the Green New Deal make America a better place to live or a worse place to live? I think if you focus it that way, people are going to start to see, oh, wow, I, I can totally see how this policy, which trying these completely far-fetched uh, experiments and and having our whole grid and transportation system rely on these failed technologies, that could make America a terrible place to live. And then they'll integrate that with the kinds of climate things. And they'll say, yeah, this is not actually going to, what is this going to do for CO2 levels? And how is that really going to benefit me versus what it's actually going to do in terms of its really significant impact is it's going to make your life worse. It's going to make if, if passed, it would make us a lot like Venezuela, which I think we're going to talk about today. So I find that very helpful. Any thoughts uh, from you guys on this? Because I know you guys also get into a lot of conversations about things. I mean, the thing I like about it is one of the things I found just generally with clear thinking and persuasion is there's this quality of like, once you hit on the right notes, everything feels obvious, even if it's very controversial at the headline level, right? Like the moral case for fossil fuels as a as a headline is something that people kind of say, wait, that doesn't make any sense. But when you read the book, there's this quality of it seems very obvious once it's pointed out that we should think in an even handed way, looking at all the alternatives in a pro human way. And like this sort of formulation, it's something very you you put it as relatable, but part of what it does is it makes the the issue feel much more obvious versus kind of struggling to prove something and it feeling like I'm going to, you know, beat you into submission with my string of facts and logic. Interesting. Yeah. It's it's when we talk about looking at the full context or the full impact of something that when we talk about how does this impact whether a place is a good place to live, it just automatically takes that into account. So I really like the practice of of trying to find out what what in the vocabulary and thinking of people already is 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 an example of good thinking and then how to leverage that because it's a lot easier to leverage something that people are are already doing well than to try to create a whole new thing although that can be useful too. Stefan any thoughts from you? Yeah, I particularly like to uh, take the, the big picture approach, which will also be relevant to all of my stories today. Uh, so often 
even if you have a lot of factual knowledge, you often lose sight of the bigger issues uh, and relationships. So, you know, if you have a relative risk, you can get all the facts right and still get the wrong impression about, you know, how significant is this particular risk in a certain context to your overall life risk or your overall health or whatever. And I, I find it very useful to get clear on what is a big picture impact of every single like fact. Got it. All right, Don, what is your first story today? We'll try to go through these pretty quickly because I know there are a bunch. Yeah, so I definitely want to talk about what's going on in Venezuela. And in particular, um, I mean, the larger context here is that like one of the most dire energy threats that we can face are blackouts. And right now, Venezuela is going through extreme countrywide blackouts. And this is a country that, I mean, had been one of the most advanced countries uh, in South America. And um, I mean, one of the most energy rich countries in the world. And now it's descended into darkness. And so part of what I, I found just striking is the stories I read really made vivid what it would mean and what it does mean to lose energy. And so, I mean, just a few of the things that jumped out at me. So first of all, 15 people have died that, I mean, that are proven to have died as a result of things like doctors not being able to help their patients, not being able to get food and other basic goods, all telecommunications and internet wiped out. Um, debit cards, which are the main way that people transact there aren't working because point of sales terminals are all down. Food is rotting at restaurants and supermarkets can't operate. And uh, there's water shortages because the pumps need electricity to work. Residents in wheelchairs are completely stuck because their elevators don't work. And you just have complete darkness at night. And I think like just concretizing how valuable energy and reliable energy is like, there's no, I mean, this is a very tragic story, but it's useful from that perspective. And then if you get into the causes, um, the, the kind of immediate causes are not totally clear. What basically looks like is that their, uh, hydroelectric dams have not been maintained, or at least the transmission lines haven't been maintained. And, uh, there was a fire that kind of set off this, but it's really, years of neglect and mismanagement as a consequence of having a country that has been an economic crisis for a long time and that there's no incentive except for fear for people to maintain things because there's no profit incentive because it's all government controlled and the i think the takeaway for us in in the US is at minimum, this question of we should always have as something when we're thinking about energy or electricity, does a given policy strengthen or weaken the grid? Does it make the grid a better place um, for us to get energy from? And I think that's a really important question now because we're living in a time where coal is being shut down, nuclear is being shut down, and renewables are being put in their place, or even natural gas, which has a lot of virtues, but also has certain um, can run into certain problems in extremely cold weather. Like it's a, it should be a real live issue for us. Yeah. And this, this story is so, um, tragic and I mean, it's really, I've said this about a lot of things I'm sure, but it's, it's really right out of Atlas Shrugged in terms of just, you, you see how these parts of our society and our life that we take for granted can just fall. And then they all, they're all living on the motor of the civilization, which is ultimately the power system. And just thinking about, yeah, somebody is stuck in a building. Like right now, somebody's stuck in a building and they're, you know, with without power, the civilization in some ways becomes more hazardous than it would have been uh, a few hundred years ago. And then you think, okay, well, we've got this plentiful food system, which is usually great. But then if it doesn't have power, then what do we have? And it's not like they can just jump right back to their farms and start farming foods. There's this, I've, I've become fond in the last couple of weeks of this term, the human ecosystem, because it's really th this amazing ecosystem that we've built, the heart of which is the electric grid and and maybe 
along with that, the transportation system, those are just, they, they allow us to exist in this very exquisite way, but it's, it's a very unnatural thing in the sense that if, if you take it away, everything goes with it. And thus, when we're talking about, oh, we're afraid of what X is going to do to the ecosystem and this amount of ice is melting, you really got to be afraid of what something does to your power system because that is, that's your protection against, uh, against everything, including uh, climate. And without that power system, you have to deal with nature. Not only do you have to deal with nature, you have to deal with nature in a way where you haven't been trained to deal directly with nature. So it becomes even worse in a sense than if you were a forager. Stefan, what story do you want to talk about first? I have a very timely story, and this is a Colorado Senate Bill 181, which uh, might be in consideration on the Colorado Senate floor as we record this. And this is officially known as uh, a bill concerning additional public welfare protections regarding the conduct of oil and gas operations in Colorado. And it has been rushed through the legislative process since uh, March 1st. It's now already in the, you know, it went through several committees and uh, it's now already uh, on its way to the Senate floor. And uh, so this is, this would modify uh, some of the regulations and laws in place in Colorado regarding oil and gas uh, development, which has been uh, increasing over the last couple of years, as many probably know. So the claimed aim of this is uh, to enable local, local governments to better protect human health and welfare, and also the environment from oil and gas development impacts. Um, and this, the history of little bit of historical context is that last year there was a ballot initiative called Proposition 112, which essentially wanted to increase setback rules for oil and gas development and in, in a very radical way, which would essentially have banned a lot of new development there. And now the legislature is uh, considering changing the regulatory environment and uh, so this was the the proposition 112 was defeated last year by a somewhat significant margin 56% voted against it and now this new legislation um i want to just highlight a couple of things that uh i found very detrimental to the future development of oil and gas in colorado um so one aspect of this is that it allegedly gives local control over the siting of wells. And this could be good and bad, depending on what the local government has to say about oil and gas development. And I'm generally in favor of uh, local governance over uh, local issues, of course, but this has a particular danger attached to it where it creates just a patchwork of different regulations for the business, which makes it very difficult for uh, large projects to go forward. And it also has a curious formulation in the in the current bill that says if there's a conflict between state law and the local law, then the more stringent uh, regulation will prevail. And this, in my view, indicates a bias against development. So this is not aimed at encouraging development, which has had many beneficial impacts on Colorado in the, in the recent past, but it's more like an obstruction to further development. Well, then it's clearly not about, I think this idea of local control is very problematic, but it's clearly not about local control. Yeah. If it's saying that we will oppose local control, if it involves less control than state control. So it's, yeah. it's essentially just, we want, uh, we want to find as many ways as possible to block development. Correct. So they will enable uh, local governments to obstruct uh, the development more if it's not possible on the state level. That's, that's a, that probably so with, is a secret. With, with this local control thing, I think it's really important to have the concept of, of rights here to think about what is the what is the purpose of government. So the purpose of government, of local government or a state government or a national government, is ultimately to protect the rights of citizens. And 
functionally, that really means what you're, you're always doing in one form or another is you're protecting people's property rights, their right to use their, their body and land that they own. And in a sense, air and water that they own, you know, that, that surrounds them. And then they're trying to improve it. And then they're exchanging it for stuff that's created on other people's property. And so it's just all, it's ultimately all about property in the extended sense. And it's, it's about trying to protect rights. And thus, it's, it's definitely trying to protect the kind of thing where you have an ability to create a tremendous amount of value with your land by putting a well pad on it and then safely extracting some very, very valuable materials that literally everyone in the, the kind of material that literally everyone in the country uses to survive in the sense of oil and gas, both for fuel and automotive fuel and electricity and synthetic products. So this is literally a, a universal value in our civilization. This is exactly what governments should be protecting. And then their job is to protect your right to do it in a way that doesn't interfere with the, the property rights of others, which means that you're not allowed to present a significant danger to other people, which is different from other people have a right to have zero risk from any accident. That's impossible. And then you wouldn't be allowed to do anything, let alone drive or something like that. But it has to be. It, the idea is if if you present like a demonstrable significant danger to somebody else, then the government has the right to intervene if they can demonstrate it or they have a right to ask you for restitution if you actually cause damage. So that's that's what the government is there to do. And then the relationship and that that should be kept in mind. It's it's the job of government in general to protect the rights of people, ultimately to improve their lives. And then there are reasons to have state and local and national, but it's ultimately what is the best way to protect rights. And there are, and it's definitely not that you want, um, you want just you always want the local government to have as much power as possible. For example, I do not want the local government to have the power to pass slavery and to decide that people who are pro-fossil fuels should be enslaved. Like, I, like local control is not a good thing if it's violating rights. And part of protecting rights is that you have a certain amount of stability in how rights are defined. It's, it's very legitimate to say, okay, at a certain level, it's best to define rights this way. And I think in general, it's okay to define rights broadly for, for a broader area of government to do it when the rights are going to be really common across places, whereas sometimes, say with air pollution, you might want to do it on a state level just because the 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 nature of a place, of certain places, is going to be totally different in terms of its potential for air pollution than others. So the Los Angeles Valley is or San Fernando Valley, Los Angeles area is totally different than say North Dakota. So you may not want the same emissions levels, but it, it comes down to low, we're, we're not for, we're for the protection of rights and we're not for local tyranny. And that's really what this is advocating for. And it's actually advocating for maximum tyranny because it's just saying we want whether it's if the local government demands more control, then the local government has authority. And then if the state government demands more control, then it's the state. So it's just it's a complete denial of rights, both in terms of they're not focused on rights and then they they're advocating a fundamental instability that's incompatible with rights and it's going to it's the kind of thing that makes a place a bad place to live and in part because it becomes a bad place to do business and then and uh, i mean, i don't know if they're subjecting the marijuana business to this at this point but it's going to hurt them and a lot of other people to the extent that they hurt the oil and gas business so the the, the second significant effect on on the oil and gas business that this will have is that it takes away some provisions in the existing regulation that calls for a test for cost effectiveness and technical feasibility of uh, technologies that, for example, mitigate pollution issues. And that seems uh, almost insane because obviously it matters a lot how much certain technologies cost. We've seen this in other regulations like new source review for power plants, where, you know, Technical feasibility and cost effectiveness are very important to determine what would be the best cause of action. And, you know, 
filtering emissions, for example. Um, and the third uh, provision in there is that it alters the composition of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, which is a state-level regulator uh, that gives out permits to the uh, various projects. And so as of now, uh, the composition is three people with, uh, at least three people with significant industry uh, experience, and this would be reduced to one. And there will also be requirements for having people with, uh, you know, air pollution regulation experience and uh, land use uh, experience and so on. So essentially it changes the composition from a more pro-development composition and changes it into a more critical composition. So it's, this seems to create an environment where it's less likely that uh, permissions will be granted to projects. And this is also to me clearly indicating that this is more about uh, stopping development rather than enabling safe development. Yeah. And and in particular, developing oil and gas in a modern way is, you know, among the things that industry can do that have risks. And there are things, and I was reading some stories today about say natural gas pipelines exploding and there, there are things that can go wrong and, and natural gas pipelines are a great thing. You just need to make sure to do them really well. But in terms of, in terms of actual risk to the health and well-being of people in ways that could really violate their rights, oil and gas development is pretty low on the list in terms of things that you should actually be worried about. So the fact that they're, they're just doing anything they can to stop this is just the, the it's really a farce that they're concerned about health and safety, uh, and it's it's actually just anti-development. Um, let's see, Don. What is your next story? So, I mean, speaking of local tyranny in the name of fighting non-local issues, Illinois has basically come up with their own version of the Green New Deal. Only this is sketched out in detail and has a shot of becoming law. So, uh, on February twenty-eighth, the Illinois Environmental Council announced its Clean Energy Jobs Act legislation. And it's very complex. It's 365 pages. But the the most uh, notable aspects of it are that it's calling for Illinois becoming 100% carbon-free in its energy by 2030 and 100% renewable by 2050. And the distinction there is that carbon-free means you can't get electricity from fossil fuels, but you can get it from nuclear. And indeed, Illinois is the leading, they they generate more of their electricity from nuclear, more than 50% of it than any other state in the United States. And then once they're supposed to get to 100% renewable, that means excluding nuclear. And if you read the bill, it also excludes any new large-scale hydro. So it's basically biofuels and wind and solar, mainly wind and solar. And I mean, just to get some of the scale of what it's calling for over the next decade, you'd get 40 million solar panels and 2,500 wind turbines along with $20 billion in new infrastructure. And that's just the next decade. But the major thing that I found striking both in what I've read of, uh, the high end, I haven't read all 365 pages of the bill, but in every summary I've read in every news article, there's no discussion or no attempt to contend with the intermittency problem. Like it'll mention as like a side, you know, within a series of commas that there'll be some storage. But I mean, if you're talking about eliminating all of your reliable fuel sources, then it would be a real question of if if this is supposed to be even possible, let alone economically feasible. Um, where how are you going to deal with intermittency? And there's just nothing that addresses that, which to me suggests that like this is a bill that's not even coming close to thinking about what would make Illinois a better place to live. One of the the kinds of thing one of the kind of things we should be scared about in a society is any kind of mania where just people's dire- people's thinking is just in one direction and that's all they can focus on and they ignore very obvious things and with the renewable energy mania 
right now. It's it's in a sense derivative of climate mania, but it's really specifically focused on how do we get to this this specific form of energy, renewable energy. This mania is just ignoring totally vital things, including, as you're talking about, the stability of the grid and the fact that nobody is talking about the blatant, obvious problem with these technologies that they are unreliable that that people aren't taking this seriously this has just they've you've never nobody has come close to solving this problem none of the storage math makes any sense also i mean all of it is as even as expensive and unreliable it is as it is it's all coming from fossil fuels anyway uh, there's a ton of other stuff you could say but just fundamentally that people are obsessed with forcing us to use this thing that doesn't work is is really scary. And it's particularly scary that they're not even thinking about it. They're so dogmatic. And one, one thing that needs to happen practically is just that the renewables, so-called solar and wind, really need to be properly demonized as unreliable. I think of that as, in a sense, even the highest priority right now. And that's one reason why I'm grateful to people like Michael Schellenberg, who are making the point about nuclear versus the unreliables. And and Schellenberg at this point, I believe, is opposing the use of unreliables, which is basically the right tack to take given their current state. This is because you something needs to be done to undo this mania. And as we've talked about, major corporations have promoted this 100% renewable. So just getting rid of this idea that renewable is any kind of salvation. And I think one actual interesting area of attack is to do some research about the actual CO2 profile of these. Because I my sense from the research that I've done is that nobody is measuring this remotely properly in terms of what is the actual what are the actual emissions of using uh solar and wind for any significant portion of energy i've talked about on previous shows how when you're using them you're using the baseline energy infrastructure anyway and then you're using fuel you're using your fuel less efficiently because it has to cycle up and down rapidly to accommodate for the erratic behavior of solar and wind. So someone needs, and I guess that's going to be us, so we'll talk about this soon, but somebody needs to do any kind of CO2 accounting because that's that's one way in which this mania can be busted. But it is, is truly a terrifying mania that we're so obsessed with renewable energy. If it were, yeah, we're going to build like rapid build of nuclear plants that would be that would be the wrong thing in in a bunch of ways or it, it could it could be the wrong thing but it it would not be as scary as people just advocating mindlessly for this technology that does not work to meet the fundamental need of providing us reliable electricity or reliable energy more broadly and just quickly like contrast that you mentioned this idea of uh, natural gas pipelines exploding i saw an article in rolling stone that just you know harped on this and here you have a situation where you have something that's a proven incredibly valuable source of reliable energy that has a side effect and that yes we should be taking very seriously the risks and there are people thinking about them and you have journalists writing about them in mainstream publications and if you took that same approach with, all right, here's a, a an energy source that like doesn't work and we're not going to take seriously this fundamental problem, not even just like a side effect of what can go wrong, but a fundamental flaw in it that like, this is a, the, like an ultimate illustration of just the biased way that we're thinking about things. Yeah. Just even think of the, cause in that, that story in Rolling Stone, I saw a little bit of, I mean, they show a house that's just totally bur- burned and it's, it's a scary sight, but you just think about what's what happens if the grid goes down or or if you lack fuel for transportation, it just even in terms of fires, what happens when you're when you're trying to burn wood in your home? I mean, if you can even get wood and then what happens when there is a fire and you don't have a fire department that's operating? There's just the ecosystem is so delicate. It's not delicate. It's, it's resilient if you're allowed to act. But if you're not allowed to act to maintain it, then it just is incredibly, incredibly delicate. Stefan, what story do you want to talk about next? 
So uh, March 11th was the eighth anniversary of the Fukushima incident uh, in 2011. Uh, a big earthquake and tsunami hit the eastern shore of Japan and subsequently also damaged a couple of nuclear reactors. And uh, at the time, of course, this was big news and a big catastrophe, but there was also a very biased view on sort of the reactor catastrophe as compared to the tsunami itself, which killed uh, something like 16 to 18,000 people in Japan. And so even eight years after that, where you would think that this, the facts have been straightened out, um, there are still some myths circulating um, both in the media and in the blogosphere and, and social media and so on. And I just want to uh, clarify two things that I saw that I found particularly uh, bad, like fake facts on, on this issue. And one is uh, comes from Germany. So there's an institution called the Landeszentrale für politische Bildung Baden-Württemberg, and Baden-Württemberg is a southern German state, and it's a it's a it's a state agency for public education, and they tweeted uh, on the anniversary of Fukushima uh, thousands uh, about thousands of uh, thousand victims of the nuclear catastrophe in Fukushima, and this is of course obviously wrong because uh, thousands of victims were from the tsunami, and nobody died from the radiation of the damaged nuclear power plants, even though it was a significant uh, threat at the time. Um, and so they sort of paddled back after being criticized, but uh, apparently only with one paddle. So they drove circles in the little boat. <laughs> so, and now they are clay, they have referenced a website dossier uh, from the time that they reported on it and then claiming uh, had they essentially had many factual errors in there, but the most egregious thing that they did was they put Fukushima in the same category as Chernobyl. So technically on the scale of radiation released, it's sort of in the same category, but the problem is that the, that the highest category of nuclear accidents sort of is open-ended and it puts together all kinds of accidents. So Chernobyl, of course, called, uh, caused a couple of immediate deaths and probably many deaths uh, in the aftermath, and Fukushima did not. Um, so interestingly, in Baden-Württemberg, in, in the southern German state, uh, probably as a result of the Fukushima incident, uh, a Green Party prime minister was elected who is still in, in office. So maybe that's a hint where the ideological direction of this is going. Um, Another example of, of the myth around Fukushima is a Time magazine article from uh, 2018 titled Japan Acknowledges First Radiation Link Death from the Fukushima Nuclear Disaster. So they don't attribute thousands of deaths to this uh, incident. But at the time, like in 2018, there was a Japanese worker who at the time of the cleanup work in uh, like shortly after the incident, received a significant dose of radiation of 195 millisievert. And, you know, just to put this in proportion, it seems somewhat clear that over 100 millisievert, your risk of getting a long-term uh, health problem in form of cancer uh, is increased. So below 100 millisievert, you can't really attribute anything to that. And above that, there's some st statistical significance to uh, health impacts there if exposed to a large population. But the problem here is that this was based on a Japanese uh, broadcasting service uh, report that this, this worker was actually, so the government didn't acknowledge that, that, the, that the radiation actually caused this cancer. They just uh, made his family eligible for compensation payments. So it's a formal sort of acknowledgement, hey, this guy worked for us and he now got cancer and we are going to compensate his family for this. And this is not at all and sort of uh, proof that this cancer was caused by the radiation exposure. And it's also statistically very unlikely that this particular cancer, this lung cancer, um, was caused by this radiation. 
One is it's atypical for the radiation exposure to get lung cancer. And two is from experience in other exposure uh, sort of natural experiments like the nuclear bomb drops and other accidents, we know that these cancers take a long time to develop, often decades. And this is a very short time period for this to develop. So it's, it seems very unlikely, both statistically and from what we know how this develops, that this is actually a, a case of someone dying from the radiation. So for all we know, at this point, there's probably zero people, uh, zero dead people from the Fukushima radiation exposure. Well, and, except for the the forced evacuations. Yeah, so that, that's another good point. So uh, the the both the evacuation measures in place at the time and also the cleanup work have seen some deaths. So the cleanup work, of course, thousands of workers with heavy machinery involved. That causes uh, some deaths and also the rushed evacuation of vulnerable population in you know, hospitals and so on. That was also very stressful and actually killed some people. So the current debate among experts is, okay, is this, is this kind of extreme measure of evacuating people, you know, when we see low doses of, of radiation uh, in the area, is this actually warranted? Is this the best cause of action? One thing I've been thinking about, and this this has come up on Power Hours a long time ago, is just the how we should negatively evaluate people who create unwarranted fear. And you're certainly seeing this with the climate issue, where you have all these stories of people who are seeking therapy and who are feeling terrible about climate and who are who fear apocalypse in the future. And this is very real damage, and this is damage to people's enjoyment of life. And certainly in a, in a concentrated sense, you see this with nuclear, where if there's any kind of accident, people are being taught that, oh, yeah, you're going to get cancer, and this is a big threat to your life, and so you should run. And then that, that, that can actually just get people killed if you're trying to move elderly populations quickly, and that there are dangers there. But then just more broadly, you're making people's lives miserable, and yet there's there's not much of a social cost to pay for fear-mongering, even though that's a very dramatic, that is a dramatic harm to people's enjoyment of life. And with the climate thing, it's crazy. And I've heard even smart psychologists talking about this, but interestingly, a lot of the, uh, you know, certain people, certain psychologists like cognitive psychologists or cognitive behavioral therapists will talk about things like distortions and they'll say, well, you know, you're, you're engaging in distorted thinking when, when they're, when they're talking to somebody just about somebody's normal thinking. And yet with climate catastrophe, I hear the same people saying, yeah, you know, it's totally reasonable what you're thinking about climate catastrophe. I don't know what to tell you. And it's just like, no, this is exactly the kind of thing where your mind is just totally going nuts exaggerating this one area and then you're ignoring all these things that you actually should be more afraid of like blackouts don um, oh do you have one more thing to say Stefan? sorry on, on that note so i've seen people discussing uh that it's highly plausible in the case of chernobyl that the anxiety issues caused by the you know public narrative about the negative impacts of the radiation is actually more harmful to human health in the area than the radiation yeah that wouldn't Surprise me at all. So this week, I'm actually leaving in about an hour for Youngstown, Ohio, and I'm giving a speech on uh, giving a little speech tomorrow night and then on Wednesday morning to the Youngstown Chamber of Commerce. And Don, I know you, you are tracking one of the stories there. That's one of the things I'm going to comment on while I'm there. Yeah. So there's a Pennsylvania based group called the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund or uh Celdef. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it's less of a mouthful. So I'll go with that. And for the last eight years, they've been trying to get a fracking ban in Youngstown. And last year, they couldn't even get their proposed ban on the ballot because it turns out that that would actually conflict with the state constitution. So they decided, all right, we're going to amend the state constitution. And basically very similar to the way that Colorado is attempting to, where locally, you could have more restrictions on development and those would uh, those would take precedence over state um, laws and regulations that in that case would allow for development. 
And the one of the things that has become very clear looking at this issue is that you have this group, and most of whom are outside of the state, let alone uh, the city, who are like just constantly going through the process of getting these proposed bans on and like their downside is very small but the but the the um the industry and then anybody who values energy in the area has to spend a lot of money to fight these off and even though they keep winning every single time and i think there's there's just this pervasive sense there but more broadly that there's a real feeling by people who are pro energy that there's this overwhelming opposition and, and it just takes so much time and expense and feels like it's coming at you from every different angle and just feel like, well, how do I, you know, how can we actually respond to all of these pinpricks that, you know, add up to ultimately a knockout blow when you get something major passed, uh, like, you know, potentially could be happening in Illinois or, or Denver right now or in Colorado right now. Yeah. I've been thinking about this. So it's it, to, to bring it back to an earlier discussion. These are, these are policies that would make Ohio certainly a much worse place to live. And the specific place or one of the specific places is called the Mahoning or Mahoning Valley. I don't know if it's Mahoning or the Mahoning Valley, but I mean, this is a case where you've got a technology that is very that is very valuable that allows an area to create a lot of value that gives more job opportunities to people to create that value that generally drives down energy prices that makes it easier to get access to affordable natural gas and and then that makes everything else in the society possible because energy is the industry that powers every other industry. And in general, the safety concerns with this kind of industrial operation are much less than with others. So what what can the industry do? Well, I'm going to talk about this on in my talk on Thursday in particular. So part of what they need to do is really just is I think what they need to do most importantly is is frame the issue properly. And I do like the the framing of is you know when we're looking for policies that'll make Ohio a better place to live and we want to avoid policies that'll make it a worse place to live and therefore we have to look at the pros and cons of every policy and then you have to talk about well here's the positive of being allowed to engage in this behavior and also when also talk about people's property rights in terms of their right to engage in this behavior and why it's wrong to prevent people from using their own property to benefit their lives and to benefit Others' lives. So you need to have that part of it. You need to have a good account of the risks and side effects, and to really try to identify those a lot more precisely and make clear that they're being completely exaggerated. Another thing that's important to do is to say so you want, you can talk about you want Ohioans to flourish, you want Ohio to be the best possible place to live. That's important in terms of framing the goal. Another thing that's really important is having a positive policy. So to say, okay, we we are in favor of this policy of protecting people's rights. And, and part of what I think would be really valuable to do is to, to make clear to people, hey, here's, here's what policy we advocate and here's how it applies if if a company in our industry does something wrong. So if, you know, if you notice a danger, then you can ask for an injunction or if something goes wrong, you can get restitution just just making clear that the what what policies you're in favor of and how those really do protect people's rights because often it's there's this false alternative where either you're in favor of this very tyrannical policy that the advocates are advocating or you're just for no no law whatsoever and no protection. The idea is, no, we're for protecting everybody's rights. And so that includes if something goes wrong, here's what we do. But we don't treat people as criminals when they're not doing anything wrong and when they're doing something right. So that's another. So it's, I like think of as you frame the goal or the standard, and I call it arguing to 100. You define that, and then you define what your positive policy is, and then make clear what your negative, you know, what the negatives are, how making Ohio a worse place to live is what you want to avoid. And how you have to think about how to, I mean, one, one way to characterize the, the negative policies and the negative, I would call them the negative people. One, one 
piece of terminology I like is describing them as blockers. I like the alternative of builders versus blockers. And do we want to be a state of builders versus blockers? And just making clear that there are certain people who just want to block anything and they'll, they'll just pick on all kinds of different things. And, but they have nothing positive to contribute. And yet they're trying to deprive you of opportunities to improve your lives. I think with, with that kind of framing where you stand for a positive goal, where you stand for positive policy, where you oppose the opposition as moving us toward the opposite goal by advocating an opposite policy, that's that's part of what I call arguing to 100 and then arguing your opponents to negative 100. Uh, Don, any more thoughts on that one? No. All right. Well, that's dramatic pause. So, Stefan, do you have any more quick stories before we wrap up? I have one more thing I want to cover. Yeah, one quick uh, battery story. I know everyone enjoys these. Uh, so the next largest battery in the world will probably be in Texas. And Wait, the next pre- next largest is in second largest or the, the new largest battery in the world? The, the, the new largest, the, the new record holder and largest battery of the world. Uh, will probably be in Texas and probably be completed around 2021. And uh, so I just wanted to point out a couple of of numbers here so we don't get the same story as with South Australia's Tesla battery, which was very inadequate. Um, So it will be a 495 megawatt uh, storage uh, capacity um, battery and curious, in all the news stories, I couldn't find out what the megawatt hour storage capacity actually is, but it's typically a small multiple of the megawatts, which is the rate with which this can be charged or discharged. So to put this in perspective, it's quite small, less than 1% of the 123,000 megawatts currently installed in as capacity in Texas, and also less than 1% the, uh, than the peak demand of last year, which was over 70,000 megawatts. So this this is similar in proportion to the South Australian battery, and it will not help with the intermittency of all the wind and solar capacity in Texas. And so just for another comparison, the Bass County Pump Storage Station in Virginia, which is sort of the real largest, world's largest uh, storage facility, uh, that provides 3,000 megawatts and has a storage capacity of 24,000 megawatt hours. So this can like run for eight hours and uh, at a capacity that actually would replace one or two actual power plants. And that's a pumped storage facility? That's a pumped storage facility, yes. The, the largest in the world, I believe. Interesting. Yeah, it's another case where people are not actually looking for cost-effective solutions. There's just this renewable slash battery mania. And not not only are people just completely focusing out of context and, and insanely exaggerating issues about CO2 levels, but they're myopically allowing only one quote-unquote solution, which is the worst solution. So really, really eager to do more to fight this kind of mania. Okay, one more thought for me. I'll try to keep this one quick so we can stay more or less within the hour, but this is another thing I've been thinking about recently, and I call this the attack on industrial collaboration, the attack on industrial collaboration. And I'll give you just examples of how I think that what I mean by industrial collaboration and then how this is under attack in a lot of different places. So I'll give you just two kind of quick schematic historical examples, which are a little bit oversimplified. But if you just take the issue of heating historically, so you think about people generating heat, which is a fundamental human need just about everywhere in the world, they use fire and then at a certain point they use coal stoves. And then what happens is at a certain point, people figure out, okay, there's a more decentralized way we can generate heat. So we can collaborate industrially. So we're not just each burning coal in our homes, which is both pretty expensive and has a lot of side effects on our air, but we can collaborate and have a more uh, 
you know, central solution. So we can, we can get economies of scale and then we can get a situation where we're going to be able to produce more power per person at less cost. And we're going to be able to produce less pollution in part, because let's say we can use smokestacks and at least we can disperse things in a way that's not going to be as dangerous. So this is, this is a common kind of phenomenon where people figure out a way to collaborate and then they produce something that's more cost effective with fewer side effects. There's there's also the second example is with automobiles, which is a kind of similar thing where for the need of transportation, people are using horses and then that's causing all sorts of real air pollution issues because it's biological air pollution and people are getting sick and it's polluting the water. And then people figure out, oh, well, they there's this way to manufacture automobiles. And that is ultimately a much more cost-effective way to get around. It gives you a lot more power. And then it also generates way less in terms of dangerous air emissions. So you have more mobility and fewer side effects with that. And then with the first example, you have more power and fewer side effects. And yet note that in both situations, uh, both the coal industry and the auto industry are criticized, or the gasoline industry in some cases, are criticized for making our air dirtier. And they are, they're often, sometimes people invoke the concept of rights and they'll say, well, this, these industries made our air dirtier. And my response to that, and, and we have a right to pristine air. And I say, no, that's, that's not true because what actually happened is we engaged in industrial collaboration to, to meet a fundamental need, whether it was heat or mobility. And we figured out a way to collaborate to make it not only better, but also cleaner. So how can we say that the lower level of emissions than what we would naturally have on our own is somehow a violation of our rights? I don't think it's a violation of our rights. And I think this idea that, oh, we have a right to pristine air is based on the idea that nature is perfect, including pristine. But no, human life is not pristine by its nature because it has these very dirty and dangerous elements. And then it takes technology and ingenuity to improve it. So when we're thinking about things like, oh, I have a right to good air quality, we need to look at it in the context of what came before and what would life be like on our own. And in that context, I think we shouldn't have people, the assumption shouldn't be, oh, well, the ideal is to have zero air emissions of any kind because that that was never the case. And what you can say is that if you can develop a technology that's just as cost effective and then has less in the way of air emissions, then yeah, then you should be able then then that's good. And then you can say at a certain point, yeah, well, it's it's now a violation of our rights because it's no longer necessary for fuel or mo- for heat or for mobility to emit X amount into the air. But if if we find a shared solution, a collaborative solution where in some way we're we're creating this infrastructure that's generating some emissions, but that's less than before, it's corrupt to say, oh, well, these emissions are violating our rights. And that's what I take the modern green movement as doing all the time. They're benefiting from the heat. They're benefiting from the mobility, from these industrial collaborations. They're engaging in them. They're asking for the heat. They're asking for the mobility. They want to live in these civilizations. They could go paddle their way to some third world country, but they don't. So they're they're sharing in the industrial collaboration, and yet they're demanding to be free of the side effects of the collaboration, even though those side effects are way better than what they would be experiencing on their own. So when people invoke rights in that context, I think that's very corrupt. And I see even many libertarian types falling prey to this, where they act like, oh, the baseline of rights is I have right to totally clean air and totally clean water and nobody can infringe that that's no nature does not give that to you the closest we can get to that is the more we evolve technologically as a society the more we can earn clean air and clean water but if you want the air and water to be cleaner then figure out or support a better technology for doing it but don't oppose the best technologies that have already made our air and water cleaner and say oh i'm for clean air and clean water therefore i want to stop them because if you do that successfully then you're going to make everyone's life worse including their environment worse you're going to make the place that you live and benefit from a much worse place to live so that is my final thought for today 
Thanks, guys, Don and Stefan, for joining me. Next week, we will be back. Uh, let's see. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email us. I'm at alex at industrialprogress.net. Don is don at industrialprogress.net. Stefan is Stefan, S-T-E-F-F-E-N, at industrialprogress.net. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, which I highly recommend, go to alexepsteinlist.com. That's alexepsteinlist.com. Sign up. If you are in an organization, please share that with others. And if you need a great speaker on energy issues, email Don, don at industrialprogress.net, and he can hook you up with uh, I can speak or he can speak or Stefan can speak if you're in Europe, or we have a bunch of other great speakers who can meet your needs. All right. That is it for this week. Until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.